Welcome to Fixing Healthcare. I'm one of your hosts, Jeremy Kaur, also host of the Popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO at Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert was the CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He is currently a Forbes contributor, a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, and author of the best-selling book, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Health Care and Why We're Usually Wrong, and Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. All profits go to Doctors Without Borders. If you want information on a broad range of healthcare topics, you can visit his website, robertprolmd.com. For the eighth season of Fixing Healthcare, we focused on leadership. At various events I've attended, people have told me how much they've enjoyed this season's programs, how much they've learned from the leaders' personal journeys, and the lessons they've mastered along the way. In addition, many have suggested that given the remarkable success Robbie had leading Kaiser Permanente for 18 years that I interview him. So that's going to be the plan today. Whether you're currently a leader or hoping to be one in the future, I promise you'll find this conversation engaging and educational. Robbie, if you had to define what leaders do, what would you say? Jeremy, to me, leadership is a creative process. Administrators, they make what is supposed to happen occur. They make sure that people get paid their salaries on time, and they make sure that their organizations follow the regulations that have been legislated for the industry. But leadership is making things happen that otherwise would not. In broadest terms, leaders create a vision that people can see. Then they align the people of the organization around that vision. And finally, they motivate them to move forward. That three-part definition sounds remarkably simple, yet incredibly complex. Later in the podcast, we'll have to unpack each of these three steps. But before we do, let's start at the beginning. When did you first decide to become a physician? Jeremy, I went to college to become a university professor. In my freshman year, the individual who was my mentor, and absolutely brilliant, didn't get tenure. He ultimately became the chairman at Reed College. So the reason for the tenure denial wasn't the lack of academic excellence. It was his political views. I decided that day that I wanted to pursue a career without politics. And I thought, what could be more apolitical than medicine, a field that involves saving lives with death, the clearest marker of failure? I was naive. As a 17-year-old, what did I know? Two years later, I applied to Yale Medical School. I was accepted. I loved medicine from the first day in the anatomy lab to the last of my clinical rotations. And how did you become a plastic surgeon? Jeremy, as happened when I decided to become a physician, choosing plastic surgery wasn't the direct path. In medical school, I enjoyed my time rotating on different specialties. But in my quest to avoid politics, I decided that cardiovascular surgery would be perfect. It was highly challenging, with success easily measured by whether patients were able to go home and live for years and hopefully decades, or whether they died on the operating room table. I knew I didn't want to work in a field where politics, not objective outcomes, mattered the most. I chose Stanford for my residency because Dr. Norman Shumway, the chairman, had just done the first heart transplant in the United States. I loved heart surgery, and I thought I had found my calling. But then in my second year, I worked with an amazing cardiac surgeon. He was the best I had seen. 
But despite his excellence and technical skill, he received only about half of the referrals as colleagues who were good, but nowhere near as great. When I asked my chief resident why, he explained that this surgeon didn't belong to the right country club and he didn't hang out with the referring physicians. And I realized that medicine too was as much political as performance and outcome based. I considered dropping out of medicine completely and pursuing something different from my career. I thought I needed some time to clear my mind. So I traded a month of my heart surgery for a month doing plastic surgery. I had never rotated on plastic surgery, but I needed time to figure these things out. And I just thought it'd be an easy month. How tough could it be to do a few cosmetic surgery cases a day, I thought to myself. But I was shocked at the beauty and expanse of the field. It included hand surgery, head and neck cancer ablation repair, and complex lower limb reconstruction. As one of my attending doctors told me, plastic surgery focuses on the skin and its contents. But the medical problem that interested me the most was cleft lip and cleft palate. The beauty and ability to change a child's life and destiny in an hour and a half and then see the smile on a parent's face, that attracted me to a field with an immense power that I hadn't felt previously. The chairman of the plastic surgery department was Dr. Donald Laub. He was the individual who founded Interplast, which is short for International Plastic Surgery. And during the month of my rotation, he brought me to Mexico to do cleft surgery. We worked 12 and 14 hours a day, but I came back beaming and full of energy. He offered me a position in the plastic surgery residency and I accepted. It was the decision that I have never regretted. It changed my life. How did you decide to join Kaiser Permanente? Jeremy, once again, serendipity proved powerful. As a chief resident in my sixth year of residency training, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do long-term. My, lo my short-term plan was to spend a year in South America helping children born with cleft lip and palate. I knew the need was great. That spring, Dr. Charlie Thuss, who was the plastic surgeon at Kaiser Santa Clara, died in a tragic crash of the private plane he piloted. The other plastic surgeon in the department called me. He said he'd heard that my plans were still in the air, but would I consider joining him for six or maybe 12 months until he could find a full-time plastic surgeon? I figured, what could I lose? At that point, I had never heard of Kaiser Permanente. When I began the summer after I finished my chief resident year, I found that I love the collaboration, cooperation, and commitment of the doctors and staff in Kaiser Permanente. The culture, it wasn't political. It was mission-driven. Patience, not politics, came first. A few months later, I asked if they would consider me for the long-term role, and I was pleased when they said yes. How did you get into leadership? Jeremy, after I was at Kaiser Santa Clara for a year, the chief of staff asked me if I would consider becoming the head of the operating room committee. He explained there were staffing issues due to a nursing shortage and that he hoped I could come up with some innovative ideas to address the problem. I assumed he came to me because of my credentials and the great work I had done as a surgeon. I later learned he came to me only after asking everyone else and they're having said no, and he thought maybe I would be naive and foolish enough to say yes. 
But I did come up with some innovative ideas, including a one-year training program for recently graduated nurses interested in the OR, and a more rapid one for ICU and ER nurses interested in working in an operating room environment. By the end of the year, the operating room was functioning at full capacity. And when you show leadership in one area, people come to you with new problems and opportunities in other areas. Soon I was given the role of assistant physician in chief, the number two position at the Santa Clara Medical Center, sent to Stanford Graduate School of Business and ultimately selected as the physician in chief for the facility, a hospital and health system that provides the medical care for over 400,000 Kaiser Permanente members in the Santa Clara County. How are you chosen to become the CEO? Jeremy, in 1998, Kaiser Permanente was in major trouble. The organization had lost hundreds of millions of dollars for each of the previous two years and needed to borrow a day of cash to meet the state regulatory requirements of having three days of cash on hand. When the CEO of the medical group at the time stepped down, the board began the search for a successor. I encouraged a couple of physicians whom I thought could do a great job to throw their hats in the ring. I told them I'd support their candidacies, but both said no. When I looked at the people who said they'd be interested, I didn't feel as though I could support the direction they wanted to go. So I faced a choice, put my hat in the ring or go look for another job. I chose the former and fortunately things worked out well. Let's go back to your three-part view of leadership. How did you create a vision and what was it? Jeremy, vision to me, it's not something that comes from going up a mountain and hearing a voice. It begins with an honest appraisal of the external environment and an assessment of where your organization is compared to the competition. What I saw when I was first selected as CEO was that KP's traditional strategy of being the least expensive healthcare system was being challenged by for-profit competitors. They weren't lowering prices by improving care, but instead they were restricting care by making doctors gatekeepers and finding ways to exclude very sick from coverage. I knew that the mission-driven physicians in Kaiser Permanente, they wouldn't be willing to use the same pernicious tactics as these new competitive threats. And of course, I knew that I wouldn't want to lead them in that direction. As such, I recognized that the time had come for a new strategy. The second step in creating a vision is to examine your organization's competitive advantages. What are the things that you can do better than others? And I thought we could use our mission-driven spirit and our greater collaboration and cooperation to embrace opportunities to improve quality, increase access, and lower costs, all simultaneously. This led to a new strategy for Kaiser Permanente. We said, quality and service differentiation at a competitive price. It was an ambitious vision, an audacious strategy, but one that I was confident could differentiate us from the competition. Robbie, I can see how that strategy would be a winner, but for an organization that for decades had differentiated itself through low price, this was going to be quite a change. How did you get the physicians to become aligned in their support? Jeremy, I knew that we had excellent doctors. They've been trained at Stanford, UCSF, and many of the leading schools on the East Coast. 
and I knew they provided excellent medical care. But I also recognized that despite the objective data on the outstanding results they achieved, the majority of people they interacted with in their social life, in their personal life, didn't accord them as much esteem as they did to doctors who practiced in their own offices in the community. And I knew how painful this made them feel. Part of gaining alignment, or what many would call buy-in, came from my pointing out the positive impact that higher quality and convenient access would have for patients, but also pointing out the positive impact it would have for the doctors themselves. I explained, if you want to have the respect you deserve for the excellence of your medical care, you need to provide excellence in service as well. I told people that no one cares how much you know until they know how much you care. And that service is the pathway to communicating personal concern. I stress that guaranteeing rapid access and developing a strong doctor-patient relationship were as important to our reputation and success as the technical aspects of the medical care we provided. And Kaiser Permanente traditionally had lagged in personalized service. Jeremy, helping people understand a vision and gaining alignment, as you know, as a businessman, that is much tougher than it sounds. It takes 17 times for most people to learn a new word in a foreign language. And it takes 17 exposures to master a new concept and strategy. I travel to every one of our 22 medical centers at least twice a year. And I met with doctors individually during the day and held group dinners at night to explain what was happening and why it was so important that we achieve success. I can see how you might align people's vision about what is needed and how it would benefit not just the patients, but the physicians themselves. But ultimately, you still need to motivate people to take the risk of making the change. How did you do that? Jeremy, to understand motivation, it's helpful to begin by asking the converse. Why is it so hard to make change happen? All too often, people will just say, change is hard. But I believe as a leader, you need to understand why and have an approach to address the specific concerns and resistance. Actually, people don't always resist change. What they resist is change they don't understand, change they don't believe can work, and change that's led by people that they don't trust. The model I developed at the time and continue to teach is what I label the A to G model. I use that an acronym so that I don't forget any of the steps. The A to G framework is designed to address all three of these reasons for hesitation and concern. A is for aspiration, and that word combines inspiration with reality. Some it's inspiring but unrealistic, that's a dream. Changes that are very realistic but uninspiring, they're boring. An aspirational vision has a higher purpose but it's something that can happen, even if difficult to achieve. B is for behaviors. People want to know if we do this, how will my life change? I had to explain why being both a quality and service leader wouldn't require 100-hour weeks. What it would require was some flexibility 
to make sure patients' needs could be met every day. That would mean that on school vacation weeks, not everyone could be off. And it meant we'd have to be sure we had enough same day or next day appointments. So no matter how minor the problem, the patient's concerns could be addressed quickly. C is for context, helping people understand why this strategy would work in the context of competitors who are now restricting medical care. D is for data, the metrics and outcome measures we'd use to assess performance, including clear measures for quality outcomes and patient satisfaction. E reflected the engagement of leadership, which included my biannual medical center visits and the one-on-one -on -one confidential meetings that I'd schedule when I was there. People had to trust me personally. They had to believe that I treat them fairly and tell them the truth. F is for faculty, the regional and departmental leaders reporting to me, responsible for helping doctors in every medical center to provide the highest quality and best service. These individuals had to be trained and given the tools required for success. G stands for governance. I had to redesign the formal leadership structure and work with the informal leaders at every medical center to maximize group excellence. We had to be good as individual doctors, but we had to be the best as a group of physicians. Group excellence had to be the destination to which we were going. What were some operational changes you implemented as CEO? Jeremy, there were dozens, but I'll offer four. The first, working with George Halverson, who was the head of the health plan, was to implement a comprehensive electronic health record. That allowed every doctor at each visit to know the preventive services that a patient needed and make sure that they had all of them scheduled if they hadn't yet been completed. That approach resulted in our lowering the chances of our patients dying from heart disease, strokes, cancer, and sepsis by 30 to 40% compared to individuals receiving care in the surrounding medical community. The second example, we addressed the consultative appointment process. Rather than having primary care doctors tell patients to go home and make an appointment with a specialist, which is how the referral process is done in the community, we brought the specialist into the primary care doctor's office while the patient was still there using telemedicine. The result was that in the majority of cases, the patient received an immediate diagnosis, which would allow treatment to be started at the time of that first primary care visit, or at least have the next steps in the diagnostic process begun, even before the first in-person specialty visit. The third example is that we offered the ability for all patients to text and email their doctors and schedule a telemedicine visit whenever their problem could be addressed virtually. As a result, relatively quickly, we were doing millions of virtual patient care visits far ahead of any other organization in the United States. And fourth, a fourth example, we focused on improving OR performance. We figured out that by teaching patients 
crutch walking before hip or knee replacement surgery. Using the longest acting local anesthetics intraoperatively and beginning physical therapy in the recovery room immediately after surgery, that 70% of patients could go home the same day rather than having to spend three days in the hospital. And they healed faster with significantly better clinical outcomes. That sounds excellent, Rabbi. What were the overall outcomes? Over the next few years, we became the number one program in the nation for quality amongst the thousand programs, according to the National Committee for Quality Assurance or NCQA. We led the surrounding community in service as reported by J.D. Powers and Associates. And we were still able to price 10% below competitors due to the improved operational performance. Moreover, our medical group became the place where the best physicians wanted to practice. We received 10 applications for every new medical group position. Over the next decade, we grew our market share from 34% to 46%. And with one in two people in the area belonging to Kaiser Permanente, our organization's reputation and that of our clinicians providing the care soared. Bro, you were CEO for 18 years. What would you say your biggest insights and learnings were? Jeremy, my first insight is the importance of personal communication. Leaders can't implement change through company-wide emails. I led 12,000 doctors and 44,000 staff, and in a combination of individual and small group meetings, I spoke in person with nearly every physician and a huge number of staff each year. Invariably, when the vision and new strategy were first presented, people had fears and concerns. I listened to them, and I responded and explained and with enough understanding and exposure, they found the courage to move forward. And once they saw that what I had promised was accurate and benefited both them and their patients, the subsequent changes became easier to accomplish. My second insight is the power of purpose. I often tell students in my business school class that financial incentives always produce change, but rarely are the ones you're hoping to achieve. Purpose creates a common destination and once people understand what it is and they trust you and they believe you'll treat them fairly, you can count on them to drive to the goal. And finally, I learned that when it comes to leadership, windows open and windows close. And if you're not ready to jump through them when they open, despite not being sure what's on the other side, you may never have another chance. Robbie, what would you say your biggest failure was? Jeremy, despite how hard I tried, I couldn't completely protect our organization from the politics of healthcare. We started a kidney transplant program with incredible results. 150 patients, zero deaths, and only one organ rejection. But despite the success, a series of events coalesced to force the program to close. There was an employee who brought a six pack of beer to work, and when he was fired, he became a so-called whistleblower, claiming that the medical care being provided wasn't up to the standard. Then there was a reporter who had previously won a Pulitzer Prize for a story about organ transplantation, and he was looking for a second prize. He took the fired employee's story and published it as fact when there wasn't any basis. Then there was a state regulator who, feeling the pressure of the press, demanded the program be closed. 
You know, Jeremy, I felt like a parent watching their child be beaten on the other side of a tall fence by bullies and is helpless to stop the attack. It's amazing to me that a program with a success rate of over 99% ends up closed. But that's politics. As CEO, I failed to stop the attack and preserve the service, and I regret it to this day. Today you write for Forbes, do this weekly podcast, consult, speak, etc. How does it compare to being CEO? Jeremy, I feel as though I've had the privilege to experience three careers. My first was as a surgeon. I operated on 10,000 adults and children. In several cases, I repaired the cleft lip of a parent and then their newborn child. I still receive wonderful cards from families who share photos of high school, college, or medical school graduations, and then the weddings. I knew most of these families well and cherish fond memories of the impact I and the surgical team had on their lives. The most painful part of becoming CEO was that I had to dramatically scale back my surgical practice. However, CEO had the opportunity and the privilege to impact the medical care of 10 million people on the East and West Coast, a thousand times more individuals than I could help as a surgeon. But of course, I never met most of them. And my impact had to be through someone else's hands, not my own. Although I found equal fulfillment, I miss the energy and chemistry that exists in an operating room where everything flows well and people are in sync. My third career is completely different than the other two, but equally rewarding. My focus is on the health of all 330 million Americans. When I write something such as the piece on healthcare technology that I'll be publishing in Time Magazine, or give an interview to a reporter and see it quoted in the USA Today, like the one read by almost 50 million people last week about chat GPT, it has a massive impact my words and insights, they help shape the ideas of thousands of other leaders. And these other leaders can join in and help drive nationwide change. I can't tell you if I had to choose only one of these three careers, which it would be. But I can say for certain that the combination of all three is far better than any of the three would have been individually. Robert, you're a visionary when it comes to healthcare. Uh, always focused on the future rather than the past. If you could restructure medical educations today, what would you change? Jeremy, as you imply, most of medical school training is based on how medicine was practiced in the 20th century, not how it will be by the middle of the 21st. After uncaring how the culture of medicine kills doctors and patients was published, Malcolm Gladwell interviewed me at the 92nd Street Y in New York City. And he asked me the same question. I pointed out in my response that the focus on medical education today remains memorization, a skill that was essential in the past. Everything from the entrance exams to the certifying tests for medical licensing ask arcane questions about facts that few doctors will ever need in practice such as obscure biochemical pathways and parasites found only in remote locations 10,000 miles from the U.S. As I explained then and believe even more strongly now, rather than prohibiting students from bringing smartphones to the exams, 
smartphones should be required. With the technology now available, remembering tens of thousands of obscure facts isn't the most important skill for diagnosing and treating patients. Instead, it's the ability to access information on your cell phone or computer and then apply this knowledge to the patient in front of you. And that skill, it's not being taught or tested. Memory will become even less important in the future. Generative AI tools like ChatGPT are becoming available. They can do this research in seconds. Deans are worried today about how to make sure students don't use this tool to write papers. Instead, they should be focused on how to train future doctors on how best to use tools like ChatGPT. Not the current version, but the ones that will be available a decade from now. Assuming that generative AI improves following what's called Moore's Law, the idea that computing power doubles every two years, by the time the current medical students begin practice, the applications they will be using will be 30 times more powerful. And with medical knowledge doubling every 73 days, no doctor working alone will be able to match a physician using this technology. One other thought. A decade ago, I wrote an article recommending that in the final year of medical school, every student be required to spend a month in business school, learning vital skills such as team building, communication, strategy, and operational improvement. Without question, those skills are becoming even more, ever more important in the current age of technology. Rabbi, you teach at both the Stanford Business School and Medical School. How do the students compare? Jeremy, both sets of students are super smart and highly motivated. They all work hard. If there's one difference, it's that the business school students are risk takers. They're comfortably becoming entrepreneurs and they accept that to win big, you need to be willing to encounter failure along the way. In contrast, medical students are risk adverse. They prefer the well-worn path to blazing a new trail. Of course, that caution, it's important in caring for patients. Few of us would want to have someone experimenting with our health and our lives. But when that caution spills over into the system of medicine, into the culture of medicine, and leaves the profession slow to embrace change, that's problematic. In fact, that's why I'm skeptical that the type of massive transformation American healthcare requires will come from inside medicine. It's why I predict that the retail giants, Amazon, CVS, or Walmart, will lead the way. I wish physicians and other clinicians would step forward and take the lead. I think it would be better for both patients and healthcare providers. But so far, I don't see that happening. Overall, what I see is a dearth of effective leadership inside American medicine, and I don't see that changing very soon. You worked with four different Kaiser Health Plan CEOs and dozens of hospital administrators. What do you see as the biggest mistake administrative leaders make? Jeremy, my first observation is that you can't group them all together. There's tremendous variation in their own experience, skill set, and training. So as such, I hesitate 
to generalize. However, for most of the leaders that I've worked with, let me first say that I have massive respect and gratitude for their dedication and commitment. But if I had to point to one reason why a couple of these individuals, from my perspective, have failed, it's that they've put themselves ahead of others. And thinking about these one or two examples, they were jealous and fearful of other individuals. Rather than recognizing the power that comes from collaboration, they worried their esteem would diminish. They were insecure, particularly when they didn't have a clinical background or strong credentials. The reality is that as an administrator, you can get a lot of praise when you manage up. But the truth is that you accomplish much more when you're comfortable sharing the podium and acknowledging when others have more expertise. I remember reading that Colin Powell, a brilliant general and leader, would never eat until the soldiers under his command had been fed. The same is true from my perspective, whether you're talking about a health plan, medical group, or hospital leader. In medicine, the we is always more important than the I. Rabbi, any final thoughts you want to offer to our listeners? Jeremy, medicine is the greatest profession. You have the opportunity every day to make the world better, to improve the health of people, and to battle the diseases that afflict individuals and their families. As I said at the beginning, deciding to become a physician was serendipity, but it was the best professional decision I ever made. There's an expression that if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. And I can say that about my entire career. There were bad days of, as a surgeon, of course, days when complications happened. But fortunately, they weren't very many. And as I said, the helpless feeling and intense pain I experienced when people I cared about were attacked by others for political gain, that was excruciating. And today, I'm frustrated by the snail's pace of progress for the American healthcare system but I do feel that all three of my careers have been an absolute privilege, ones that I continue to love and cherish. The problems of American healthcare are about a broken healthcare system and an outdated medical culture. Leadership will be needed to transform both. We'll have to move from fee-for-service to capitation, aligning what's best for patients with what works for providers. We'll need to reward prevention, avoidance of complication of chronic disease, and elimination of medical errors. We'll need to embrace modern technology that empowers patients. And we need to recognize that teams of skilled clinicians are essential given the complexity of problems that patients now have. And finally, we'll need the courage to discard the past and embrace the future. The United States should lead the world in medical outcomes. As an historian, Jeremy, you know, our nation was founded on the principle that every American is entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We can do a far better job than today saving the lives of Americans. We can do a far better job than today freeing individuals from the pain of disease. And we can do a far better job than today helping people become healthy, a prerequisite for happiness. But none of that will happen without effective and purpose-driven 
leadership. I encourage all listeners to step forward and help make change a reality. Together we can make American medicine once again the best in the world. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. Please follow Fixing Healthcare on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. If you want more information on healthcare topics, you can go to Robbie's website, robertperlmd.com, and visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Fixing HC Podcast. Have a great day.